you think about Kellogg, we've always sold primarily through our retail partners, the Tesco's, the Kroger's, the Whole Foods of the world. And we now need to start developing that relationship to build our own first party data, because right now the retailers primarily own those relationships. And so we've been thinking a lot um, over the last 18 months that I've been here of how do we start playing in that space? Where do we want to play? Where do we want to focus our efforts? Where's the value at stake? And now we're starting to go after it and, and working you know, with our partners like, like Joe here. How did Gymshark win 2020? Consumer research. They worked with a test to learn more about their audience's changing habits, then pivoted their business to meet those needs. Visit askatest.com slash D2C and use fast, accurate consumer research to get ahead. It's growth without guesswork. Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast. I am Eric Dick and today I am extremely excited to have on Joe Harper and Jordan Narducci from the world famous Kellogg Company. Now, you know, we've been in this D2C space now for just over a year on the newsletter side uh, and the podcast side. And it's funny, I've been in the space for much longer than that. And for a long time, I've sort of had this idea of the big players, the big corporations in the space, and then all these little D2C companies in there trying to come in and, and eat their cheese. And so I've had this like us versus them type mentality. When I started this newsletter, I started to realize as these people started to reach out to me, working at these big companies, that we were all on the same playing field at this point. There's a real convergence in the space where the biggest companies and the littlest companies were all on the same playing field, competing for those eyeballs, those D2C dollars. And the more that I got to know about these big companies, the more I, I became interested in the ways that they're innovating the space, the ways that they're taking on the best qualities of these companies, as well as their limitations in the space. So anyway, super excited, little intro there to have you guys on the podcast today to talk about the way Kellogg thinks about DDC. And if we could maybe start with that, uh, Jordan, maybe, can you talk a little bit about how Kellogg thinks about the D2C channel? Yeah, absolutely. So Kellogg has been playing in the direct consumer space for a while. Um, we acquired our X-Bar four or five years ago, and we've been learning a lot from them. But I would say in the last few years, direct consumer has become much more front and center for us as an organization. I joined the company about a year and a half ago. Prior to Kellogg, I, I worked much more in the startup space. So uh, actually worked with like subscriptions for a lot of those challenger brands that you're talking about. So I know exactly where a lot of probably the people that are watching this podcast or listening to this podcast are coming from. And Kellogg, you know, then then the pandemic hit, you know, in the last 16 months has really accelerated what we're doing um, in this space. And really it comes down to a, a few reasons that we want to play. One is, you know, privacy is becoming a bigger issue with Apple and and a lot of these new regulations with CCPA and GDPR and all these other acronyms that we could go on about. But it's requiring us, if you think about Kellogg, we've always sold primarily through our retail partners, right? Like the Tesco's, the Kroger's, the Whole Foods of the world. And we now need to start developing that relationship to build our own data, uh, our own first party data, because right now the retailers primarily own those relationships. And so We've been thinking a lot um, over the last 18 months that I've been here of how do we start playing in that space? Where do we want to play? Where do we want to focus our efforts? Where's the value at stake? And now we're starting to go after it and, and working you know, with our partners like, like Joe here. 
Joe, let's tell us a little bit about your background with the company. I know you've been there longer and talk a little bit about this most recent evolution and, and what you're bringing to market uh, for e-commerce now. Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> thanks for having me firstly. Um, I worked at Carlos for six and a half years. When I first joined the business, it was um, as a social media manager in the UK and Ireland business. I'd come from a online a gambling company here in the UK. Sports gambling online is very big here in the UK. I'm not sure about so much for you guys, different laws. And I come from a company that was, you know, to Jordan's point, data rich. They owned the they owned a website. They developed the app. They were the world first to create a mobile app. All over their data, all over their online user experience, and all over the importance of digital as a touch point in order to kind of communicate with their um, users. Let's say shoppers. I landed at Kellogg's, having been at Bet365, the company, for five years. And they were, it was, it's like going back 10, 15 years. You know, I remember my first week I made uh, Vine, if you remember of Vine. And there were people like coming from like three floors downstairs to come and look at this Vine. They'd never seen anything like it in, in their life. And it was kind of what 15 year olds were doing and had this sort of realization that, wow, this company is so far behind. And uh, yeah. My role kind of developed over the years, and um, I guess Kellogg's kind of quickly started to come more to the fore. They'd come from so far back, but their investment into digital, and also I must say, you know, investing into a more kind of junior staff, um, if you like, landscape, a kind of more flat organizational structure, less very senior stakeholders, more young people coming through, uh, quickly kind of uh, changed the capability and the focus and the kind of natural consumption that the employees had of digital then kind of found its way into our plans. So yeah, naturally Kellogg's has become more digitally aware and digitally enabled, still got a long way to go. And the role that I'm in now, which I've been in for uh, nearly two years, is marketing manager for e-commerce for uh, Kellogg's Europe. So um, a new role that was created two years ago, went through a, a business restructure, the company decided to resource um, behind a central European function. It had always been something that had been managed. When we talk centrally, we talk about Europe, and then within the markets, you say UK, France, Germany, Italy. There's obviously lots of very differentiated and nuanced markets in Europe. And e-commerce had always been managed as a bit of a localized thing, and the resource had always been very inconsistent across those markets. And we, even pre-pandemic two years ago, it's already the fastest growing sales channel. The business decided they need to get some kind of central, almost like a European center of excellence behind the growth. Um, channel and, and and my role covers a number of different um, areas. I guess primarily it's our data flow and how we get our data and content onto the retailers' websites. A lot easier said than done, as I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast will have experience. You know the flow of the data through the likes of Salesforce, Rambank in the UK. It's a big ask, and that's my main area of focus. But then also kind of making our marketing plans and initiative e-com ready you know we get a lot of feedback from our customers our retailers let's say that you know the stores that e-commerce has historically been a bit of a bolt-on onto our kind of brand marketing plans a slide at the end of the presentation oh and this is what we're doing on e-com and it's just the same key visual that's been kind of shrunk down into an online banner and things are changing and and actually what i would say on that is that it's the same place that i found myself in when i started in social where we were just getting tv ads and kind of slamming them onto Facebook and hoping that it works. You know, the need for differentiated content, differentiated messaging for a different shopper who's in a different mindset and who thinks differently. So kind of developing our marketing plans to become more e-com friendly, I guess, is another key area amongst others. 
and purchase focused, I'd imagine, versus awareness or, or things like that. That's the big revolution of the performance marketing kind of movement is that you're always driving towards that purchase. Yeah, well, it's that's a kind of a, a hot topic, I guess, because um, there's still a bit of a debate about whether our content online should be heavily conversion and, and price-led, essentially, versus is there a role for awareness? I mean, these platforms, we have Asda in the UK, uh, which is you know our Walmart, essentially. You're talking about kind of hundreds of thousands, millions of visitors to the website a week. So all of a sudden, it has a role as a digital platform as well. And you can still do a job of awareness whilst driving a, a conversion message. Conversion is still the objective and the key objective, I'd say. But retailers are starting to see themselves as media platforms and vice versa, right? And that's kind of why we're all here. Now, when you say retail, you're obviously talking about the big, the, everyone's grocery store, everyone in their town has Kellogg's in their grocery store. So all of those different organizations, but now you're also talking about e-retail and you're talking about the Walmarts, the online Tesco stores. Jordan, can you talk a little bit about the categories that you guys think of within e-commerce and what are your biggest ones? I think Joe's probably better positioned to talk through like e-retail specifically, because I think it's worth like maybe setting the stage though first. We break e-commerce into three main buckets. There's e-retail, which was very eye-opening for me coming from a lens of a D2C business. The amount of scale and volume you can do through these, you know, Walmart.com, Instacart channels, obviously Amazon, everyone knows, but going beyond that to like the retail um, e-commerce version of their retail sites, it was pretty eye-opening. So that's like central focus for our e-com business. And that's where there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit that Joe can talk about, you know, when answering your specific question. But then we have D2C, which is, that's where a lot of my focus is. I sit on the global team, kind of like what Joe was talking about as center of excellence, but across all of our regions, because we have North America as our biggest uh, region and, and where, where we started, but we've expanded into a, a massive global entity, but it's very decentralized and region led uh, and brand driven within the region. So we on the global team help kind of when there's a, an initiative we're trying to push or digital transformation, for example, build D2C capabilities, things like that. We can help start in one market like the US or in, in the UK and then help expand that to the other markets uh, to leverage those kind of like efficiencies. So that's D2C. And then, and then the last one is B2B, which is a really interesting, I would say, new emerging type of e-commerce that we're focusing a lot on as an organization. Which if you think about like the mom and pops out there that don't get a salesperson coming to their store every week because they're small or in a, in a small uh, you know, town that takes a while to get to, we now can communicate with them directly through this channel and optimize our offering to them in a, in a really curated, personalized way and create a digital experience that's a win-win for them and, and us. So that's been a big focus of us as an organization as, as well. So I'll stop talking and let Joe answer your actual Well, I, well now, now you got me. I want to just go a little <laughs> bit before we get back to e-retail. We'll, we'll go deep with e-retail with Joe. But this B2B, like what is the platform that you have specifically to reach this network of decentralized, smaller level yeah. stores? Yeah. So it's a Salesforce tool that we partnered with them on to basically build. A, it's really cool um, seeing what they what they can do. But basically what it does is it looks at the region and says like, okay, in your area, you as a, let's just use like 7-Eleven. Let's just use that as an example. That's a bad example because they probably actually do get salespeople, but the 7-Eleven equivalent, that's a small mom and pop. They'll look at, okay, what are the, all the other convenience stores in your region doing, right? Like what's the volume they're moving? And then they'll actually start making recommendations for that store of that size in that region and say, hey, did you know that there's 
you know, that your, your customers are wanting these type of products and they'll, and they'll, and they'll have some promotions and they'll even do like, they have a tool that helps you optimize your shelves. If they call them shelfies. So if you take a, a photo of the shelf oh, and send it to them, it's like, it's gamified and they get points and they can get, it's like a rewards platform. So we're seeing like a massive improvement in sales for, for them, right? Like it's a win-win, but like they benefit from this technology and being able to, like a lot of this stuff is still happening over the phone. It's like, it's archaic invoices and phone calls and things like that. So to be able to order directly, first of all, and automate things so you're never stocking out, but then optimize that shelf selection. That's like a big focus of B2B. And it reaches that long tail that doesn't always get our, our salespeople attention because we, we just don't have the traffic to be able to go service all. And is that a custom um, integration you have with Salesforce that you sort of built out? Yeah, you said in partnership with them. So this is an example of something that Kellogg's has that other brands are going to have a hard time matching, right? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, no? it, it's, it's, an, it, it's leveraging a lot of Salesforce's out-of-the-box solutions. It's, it's their commerce cloud. I think it's commerce cloud combined with like Watson for that personalization, you know, that AI. Um, I think I'm using those. I, I could be completely off here, but it's like, it's a lot of their out of the box, but then we bring in our, you know, our digital shelf into that mix and we make it work. Um, you know, that's personalized for Kellogg. So I'm not saying it's like something that you get out of the box and turn on, but there's some development required, but it's, it's also like, I think anybody could develop a B2B e-commerce platform. And in fact, when we acquired RX bar, they had a B2B platform, uh, that was built in Magento, but they actually had had developed that um, initially, right? Because a lot of their first customers were kind of this long tail that I'm describing, but it was more focused on like the gems, mm -hmm. you know, and the health food stores and the things like that. And so they had built kind of like a login portal of their site, which exists today, that you could go if you're if you're a wholesale customer and buy directly on online. Um, so it's it's almost like applying D 2 C tactics, but you know, instead of your average order value maybe being $30, maybe it's $300, maybe it's $3,000. So it's the scale is way different and it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's kind of probably how you think about the D2C newsletter from a B2B lens. Yeah, that does sound familiar. Very cool. I think that's a lot of great insight for people listening. Uh, if you're listening out there, consider a B2B channel for your product. Now, Joe, we've teased it long enough. Let's go uh, a little bit into e-retail and Kellogg's journey on the e-retail side of things. Yeah, so, so I guess... It's quite a broad term, but it's essentially the growth of our traditional retailers in the online channel, right? So, Which saw um, a huge jump at the start of the pandemic, I imagine. That's right, yeah. I, the stat is either 10 years growth in eight weeks. I think it's that it might be eight years growth in 10 weeks or something like that. We wow. can get the stat later. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, incredible um, growth over, I think it was um, April and May or maybe May and June. And it's... You know, I think a lot of it now is in relation to that growth figure. It's about understanding whether it will slow and how much it will slow or whether, uh, you know, how and shoppers will change their habits and go back to their old habits when we do finally come out of this never-ending kind of uncertainty. Um, that's kind of where we're at now. But, yeah, so I guess what we've seen over that period is uh, an increased engagement and focus from our retailers fundamentally. We are very shaped by how our retailers are engaged around their online channels. I think some of the retailers, without mentioning names, perhaps weren't as interested in growing their online business pre-pandemic or pre the growth of e-commerce, which was already there pre-coronavirus. Um, they because it wasn't as profitable for them because of the fulfillment costs and the difficulties of the kind of the supply chain complexities that come with it and 
the need to invest into technology and into staff essentially to come in and run an online business instead of a what we'd say a bricks and mortar store. And e-retail is essentially, yeah, the, the same version of the in-store experience, but it's so different. Um, when you think about how shoppers search and find their products, they don't browse and stumble upon products in the same way that they would through their kind of mazing through the aisles. That shopping experiences are different in the US, but I guess that's pretty kind of- I do the same path. I do the same route, regardless of what I'm buying. If I'm buying five things or a hundred things, I just, I just, that's what yeah. I do. I'm trained. So there's, there's little things like, you know, think about an aisle. You think about someone searching for the word cereal and they find themselves in the cereal aisle. There are hundreds of different aisles that shoppers can create for themselves through search, right? Because it depends. They might spell it incorrectly. They might put healthy cereal and all of a sudden they create a healthy aisle. They might put, as Jordan says, high fiber cereals and they have a personalized aisle in front of them. So, you know, so much more complex and customizable, I guess. Um, and then all these different parts of the shopper journey as well, you know, the checkout walk, the same idea as queuing up and picking up a bar of chocolate or a bottle of water. What's the online version of that? And so a lot of my work is kind of understanding and plotting that online shopper journey and then figuring out, okay, so where do we advertise our products? So for example, one of well, our biggest brand in the UK, I don't think it's the biggest brand in the US, uh, is Pringles. Um, impulse brand, right? People don't go shopping for Pringles nine times out of 10. They see it in a great off-shelf display that yeah. looks like a football stadium or a Christmas tree. And they go, great, I'll take two or three of them because I've got people coming around next week to watch football or for Christmas. Those same display opportunities, these big, what we call disruptive displays, don't necessarily exist online. So the impulse opportunity is less. And also with e-commerce, the online shop is more planned. People do it once a week or once every two weeks. They've got their favorites, which you can go back to without having to write a list or remember, I need to get strawberries, I need to get milk. They go to the favorites, they do the same shop on repeat. And so those impulse opportunities are fewer. So we have to be really strategic about thinking where our impulse brands come in. And then cereal, which is more of a planned purchase, would would potentially over-index on e-commerce for that reason, whereas Pringles would under-index. But it's still important for us to understand where are we placing our products and how does our messaging change throughout that shopper journey as well to trigger that shopper instinct. And then, I mean, I could talk about this all day, but the, the final thing I would say, obviously, is the difficulty of measurements. Well, the importance of measurement, I think because we've digitalized the shopper journey and we're dealing with retailers who own a website. And as Jordan and I are finding out, you can pretty much find out what anyone's doing on your website at any point where they're leaving the website, where they're stopping or stalling. Obviously, a lot of the work that we do with you guys. Um, our retailers are still, you know, to be quite honest, in lots of cases, quite far behind in terms of providing us with that insight or wanting to provide us with that insight that helps inform our choices for where we invest onto their websites. It's like buying any, again, media site, you know, buying different types of ads, different placements, in the same way you buy an advert on Facebook and you'd expect a great big list of metrics for how that ad's performed, really and truly, if we're going to invest with our retailers, we need the same level of transparency on performance. And there's still a long way to go to get our retailers into a position where they're willing to do that. In turn, that makes it more difficult for the e-commerce part of the business to justify investment into the channel if they can't prove the return on investment in the same way that we can prove either the return on the investment or the return on the retailer relationship from the in-store investment, which has happened over a longer period of time, if that makes sense. So without that exact 
data, like when a company like Kellogg sees that you have a 10x return in eight weeks or whatever that, that figure is, like how do you 10x down on a channel like that? Do you massively increase your advertising budgets with the, on e-retailers, which before talking to you guys, I didn't even know was a thing. I didn't know you could buy ads on, on, uh, on Walmart, for instance, or on Tesco or, or on these, these big e-retail platforms. Like what do you do when you see these massive numbers in order to like capitalize on them the most way? And I, I would also say they're they're only getting better at that. Like I'd say marketing on these channels is somewhat nascent for and and not for all of them, but like for a lot of them, but they're getting a lot more sophisticated. And so that's where like building those relationships and you know, we had a relationship with Instacart very early on and way before the pandemic, and understanding how they how to leverage that platform has been, you know, a big payoff for us. So I think it's like keeping your hand on the pulse of like where to invest your partnerships first, like where to invest your time. Time is, is the valuable resource here of like, you can't go, you know, and, and source everything and, and be in everywhere. And so all your do, products for all your hundred products, your products you have, right? right? Yeah. And so doing, I think some tests and learns in these more emerging, we call them emerging platforms while doubling down in the areas that you're seeing success or to your point, like 10 X scene down uh, where it works. I mean, Joe, you can probably answer this better, but I, I would say Kellogg does not operate in like days or even maybe weeks. It's more like quarters um, that we're doing these kind of like strategic decisions from an investment point of view. But if something is working, I think we do have the flexibility, Joe, you, you can probably comment on that better to really double down or triple down or quadruple down where it makes sense. And I think the yeah. pandemic was a good example of that, you know, when we, we had to be more agile. Yeah, I think a good metric that we try to use to understand how our online performance is, is is our offline versus online share. So if you think about how we're performing in store versus how we're performing online, essentially, whether we're ahead or behind the in-store performance is a good gauge of whether we're sufficient with either our online investment or our, our repertoire. So Jordan touched earlier about our digital shelf, which is kind of our main organic priority in terms of ensuring that we do everything we can from an organic perspective to make sure that our products appear higher in those searches. When I talked about those shelves, those online search and shelves, you've got to be in the top six to 10 results really and truly. It's like, you know, where's the best place to hide a dead body on the second page of Google results, right? And it's the same when you're talking about a Tesco share of search. If If someone's searching for crisps and we're not getting Pringles into that top page or half a page of results you know we're missing out on a massive kind of range of organic traffic now we can do paid search to drive our products higher but if you've got a strong organic base to start with it's much easier to understand where your sufficiencies of investment will come from so there's kind of lots and lots of conversations like that and lots of back-end drivers and also understanding the algorithms of the retailers as well which they're very guarded over for i guess understandable reasons if you're working for them but each and and the beauty and the beast of it, if you like, from my perspective, is how different all of the retailers are. So when Jordan says that they're kind of getting better, that's generally speaking is true. But all of the retailers are progressing at different speeds and optimizing and focusing on different areas of their of their website. You know, and some might provide great A/B testing opportunities and partnership opportunities, whereas others don't do anything like that. Others may 
provide monthly reports for no extra cost because we're a strategic partner of theirs and their category leader in serial, whereas for others, it's like getting blood out of a stone. So when you're trying to build a centralized strategy for how you invest, it's quite tricky because, you know, over here, we'd say you're not comparing apples with apples sort of thing. Yeah, I also think it's worth noting, like, you know, this concept of e-retail, we talk a lot at Kellogg, but I feel like outside of Kellogg, it's not a common thing that's being discussed. Like Eric, you even said, like, you know, I'd never even heard of it. And I think like the more I talk to emerging brands, I think that's true. And they're obviously going into retail now, but I actually think like one area where they can excel and and really focus is on e-retail because they're all digitally native. This concept of digital shelf, you know, that's newer for Kellogg, whereas these emerging brands came from that space. And so they have like probably the right imagery, the right taxonomy, the right architecture for the way to describe their brand. That's going to put them in a really good position. So what we're talking about here is not like rocket science, right? It's more about like just realizing where there's some actual like big opportunities to tap into. And I think emerging brands focus a lot, like D2C, digitally native brands focus a lot on getting into retail. But I also think they should be focusing on getting into e-retail. Even more so, even having a slight, like, because I, I was going to ask you, like, when when Kellogg walks into these retail relationships or these e-tail relationships, you guys carry a pretty big stick. And especially on the retail side, where you've been a staple for 70 years on these shelves or for as long as most of these stores have been around. And so, you know, you really own that breakfast aisle. And I, I wonder if there, I'm sure it, the same is true a little bit to the e-retail. But there is probably more room for these more nimble D2C brands, like you say, with the imagery that speaks to the modern you know, person a little bit more, maybe to have a more of a competitive leg. Like, can you speak to that a little bit about like, do you guys have to fight for shelf space in the way that other brands do? Like, do you maintain your shelf space because you also just maintain like because you're the top sellers for these stores? Are they fickle? Would they would they toss you if you weren't? A hundred percent. Right. Like, I think y- you have to fight for shelf space whether it's digital or physical and fight can mean a lot of things, right? Like trade is like, that's the whole focus of those teams around like how much investment are you putting towards the location of shelf? Right. And, and then I think to Joe's point, Joe was, was talking a lot about like, if you're not on the first page, like people talk a lot about endless shelf online, that, that's not true in reality, right? No. Like, it's just like, if you're not the first page of a Google search, you're not winning. Right. So it's, I think the same concept is there for for digital and and so yeah I mean we're fighting you know across not only other brands but also you know like digital and physical and and you know and that's where also it, it gets into like training up our teams which come from more of a of a sales background next dealing with physical you know training them on that knowledge of how to sell digitally right and now they have to balance those two things so there's a lot of effort going on in in background with our teams around like educating everyone on, on this new world of, you know, how to sell in products. And, and if a product doesn't sell, if, you know, turn is turn, right? Like if the velocity is not there, it's not going to stay on that shelf regardless of anything. So we're also shell competing on like, does the product work? Like, is it getting what we want out of it? Right. And is the retailer getting what they want out of it? And what I just build on Jordan's point is, is absolutely spot on. See if I can summarize this quickly. The relationships that we have with our retailers are based on a bricks and mortar model. We're not often we're dealing with a different team and a different buyer, let's say, for online. And the head of buying, who's always bought our cereal to stock them on the physical shelf, is quite disconnected from the digital piece. And so, for example, if we invest a certain amount into in-store marketing, 
we'll also secure positioning in shelf and we'll secure off-shelf display that I mentioned with Pringles, which is critical. And our promotional price, if we do a deal and we do a promotion with a retailer where we drop the price and the margins change and what have you, we'll get all sorts of in-store unlocks as a result of those negotiations. And at the moment, uh, perhaps a divisive thing to say, but I think it's true, is we don't get the same online benefit as those investments and kind of partnerships that we have with the retailers because it's still not kind of being given the same FaceTime and airtime as the in-store model is. And so all that stuff that Jordan was saying is a result of our relationships and we don't currently get the return on the retailer relationship, R-O-R-R, we call it, um, online in the same way we do in-store. Let's talk products. You brought up a few there. Uh, you know, We all have our favorite Kellogg products, but talk a little bit about how Kellogg thinks about launching products digitally, Jordan, maybe. Yeah, that's a, that's a big focus. So, you know, you asked at the beginning around like, why do we invest in D2C? And I could have talked probably for hours about that because um, that's you know really a, a core focus of my role. But front and center in that and, and our overall just digital strategy is how do we start bringing things to life digitally first, right? Like how do we test and learn in a digital channel um, through you know smaller scale batches rather than like, I mean, when we develop new products at Kellogg, if, if it's like a new Pringles product, we can invest millions of dollars in the capital to like accommodate that new product, right? And it could be that those new product offerings don't perform well. And in fact, the CPG industry in general, unrelated to Kellogg, it struggles to innovate, right? And, and, and have successful innovations. Um, and so a big part of our strategy is how do we de-risk, right? Like how do we bring things digitally first, test and learn, get the messaging right, optimize, and so that by the time you bring it to shelf, it'll have a higher success rate, right? And you can A-B test flavors, you can A-B test formats. Um, and that can be an innovation within a brand that, you know, whether it's a cereal brand or a snack brand that we all know, like Cheez-It or Pringles, or it could be a new brand in like a white space category. And so a big part of our focus on the direct consumer side is, is launching these things digitally first, um, whether it's a, a new brand in a new category or, or for a more mature brand um, and bringing those, those innovations to life. That's a big focus of, of D2C in general. What do you find the pickup is like? Like there's so much nostalgia and recognition for so many of your brands. So, so take those two examples, one where you're say relaunching a Cheez-It or something like that, like the saltiest, like, you know, most, you know, a very addictive snack that everyone loves and knows versus something like a white space brand where you're trying to launch a new concept for healthy shelf stable eating, for instance. Oh, it's very different, right? Like two very different approaches. And I think that's where Kellogg has some advantages that we're trying to lean into more is we have like a great following, like whether it's Cheez-It or Pringles, they have a huge fan base, right? And we have great organic traffic that we're not, I would say, tapping into as much as we could. So as we start bringing more and more of these to life, we're basically getting free acquisition right? Like we're not paying necessarily. And, and sometimes we are going to you know, be supporting these with paid, but a lot of times we can do these launches. We have a huge email database, at least in North America, and we're building, starting to build them up in other regions that we can tap into when we do these launches. We have our, obviously our organic traffic, and then we have our websites, right? And if we can use those three areas and combine that maybe with a little paid, we start with a leg up on getting those launched. And so depending on the size, I mean, we're not talking about massive volume sometimes on these initiatives. You can sell out in seconds, like minutes, you know, like some of these like limited release only available online, but then it comes into like, 
the scalability of that. And, and so I think like a core focus of ours is how do we create an offering that's unique? So it, it can't just be something that you bring your typical thing that you find on a shelf online, right? That's not going to work. What's the value proposition for the consumer? So you have to think really hard about like, what are you bringing online to sell digitally? And why are you going to get someone to go out of their typical buying behavior to buy from you? And so those are things like, whether it's personalization that you actually can't do in retail, right? We really like that angle, whether it's a gift that you're doing something personalized around or like with our new Mwell brand in the UK, where it's like actually personalized food that meets the needs depending on you know your personalized microbiome. I think we're thinking about a lot about like the future of food and the future of like personal nutrition and and how those things are colliding. And so that's a big area of focus for us. And then subscriptions and like convenience angle is, is also an area that like, whether it's discover new products that you've never heard about or replenish your pantry, like for parents like you, Eric, that, that can't go to the store every week. They just know that they want to have this for their daughter or yeah. their son every single week. Like that's the kind of thing that, you know, we can make it super easy and frictionless for you. There's a lot to unpack there. And even just to start with about D2C as an innovation channel. I think, you know, for, for a company like Kellogg, I think it's such an interesting concept where you can, before you go to the shelf and, you know, compete for shelf space and do all those things, you can have tested so many different angles, your subhead, your colors, your, you know, all these different things you could be testing on digital. You mentioned something in the pre-interview too, just like just how scrappy Kellogg will get in order to get a signal on a certain approach or, or topic, even going to the point where something this I used to talk about with like, frankly, drop shippers back in the day where they'd say, Hey, we have a product. We don't have, and they'd they'd knock up a quick website and you'd go to buy it. And they'd then a little pop-up would say, Hey, we're out of stock right now, but please send us your email. Yeah. And we'll let you know when, when it's, totally. you know, so you don't have to even invest in product at all. Like how scrappy does Kellogg gets when it comes to testing out those concepts? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And, and something that I, I think, we're pretty proud about because um, we talked about that a lot in my former job as well of like developing new products, testing them first digitally and seeing what sticks before going and developing it. And so, yeah, we call that digital research um, where like we'll actually concept test. We'll develop a bunch of different concepts online. We'll have like Facebook ads as if you're selling the product, you know, and, and then we'll measure clicks and then we'll get people to a site whether it's a new brand or a Kellogg brand, and we'll ask them a series of questions about that product and say like, this is coming soon. Like we'll be upfront about it. Cause I think what you just said, that experience kind of frustrating. If you go through this long process, fill out questions. And then at the end, you're told this product doesn't exist. Like that's, a, yeah. that's not the greatest experience. Yeah, so no. we, we try to be a little more upfront, like about what we're doing once they get past that initial click. But we found that like engagement remains super strong for the product offerings that I think are unique enough. And that's that's a big measurement of like, what's the bounce rate? What's the engagement time on site? All of those things are data points that as you can A-B test different concepts, you can get a robust amount of data for, you know, we're talking about like five, $10,000. Like we're not talking about big budgets here to do like really, really valuable tests that can guide a product development, which for Kellogg can also take, like product development also takes probably longer than your typical emerging brand for, for good reason. We have, we have like, really um, thorough quality assurance processes in place. And so if we can get ahead of that through this digital research, and, and again, it's like more data points of like de-risking the investments. It's all about like de-risk is the language that we use. All of that's going to be like super eye-opening for the, for the end user. But by the time that we get to that point, hopefully we'll have a much better success. Just what I'd say as well is um, 
kind of linked to what Jordan was saying about the complexities around getting a food signed off and created and all of the marketing content. Remember, when we own the point of purchase, it's not unfair to say we're cutting out the middle person. So when we sell a product, we don't just sell it to consumers. We have to sell it to the retailers first. They have to buy into the concept and buy the stock and agree to stock it for X amount of time and give it the shelf space. And I think Kellogg's for a long time has wanted the opportunity to do everything that Jordan's just been talking about around testing concepts and flavors without the risk associated with having already been through all the negotiations with the retailers where they've had to restock their shelves and potentially even delist one of our products to make space. And quite often when we do have innovation, we have to replace another product because we're not going to just get incremental shelf space. We have to make a choice. Whereas as Jordan says, we can go to market now with much more confidence in the concepts and the innovations that we've created because we've already kind of sense checked the consumer demand uh, without having to get the retailers involved. So we've been looking for it for years and years and years, and, and it's kind of finally here now. I think about Mwell, you brought up Mwell there, Jordan. And I think about that as a product strategy. It's actually de-risking your main product line in a way, because Mwell is sort of based on this, you know, your gut biome and, and sort of ongoing gut health. It's sort of, a, you know, and it has a different, you have some products that have, a, like I say, a slightly different take on shelf-stable foods. So in a way, you're sort of de-risking your main product line, which are these legacy brands that have been with us for 50, 60 years. And you're kind of venturing into this new space where I could see, you know, Mwell products that, you know, the, maybe an Mwell aisle for different grain bowls or things like that down the line. It's pretty interesting. What, like, how has the Mwell project gone so far? Yeah, we talked a lot. I mean, to be honest, we talked a lot about Mwell as part of the fiber family, like Joe talked about um, at the beginning and, you know, whether it actually should sit under the all brand, for example, umbrella. And um, I think we ran into some challenges around like price point, right? And I think people associate Kellogg with a certain price point and in their head, if we were to launch a product that's selling at 10x the the average order value of a box of cereal, I think th- that could be a challenge. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we grapple with building up a new brand. And I, and I think that's one of the things that Kellogg is not, I would say, used to. Um, so things are moving, I would say a little slower than we had initially set out because we're used to kind of like putting something on shelf and then it's like, go, go, go. Right. And so it's a very different process. And again, we don't have that organic following. So we're basically like, you know, the Mwell brand is a startup, right? We're, we're operating like a very lean startup. And that's where I think like, it's just a different operating model. And it's, it's one of our first ventures into doing this, like from scratch ourselves. Um, and we have a few of these, like, I'm really excited. There's multiple of these that are starting to launch. We have one in Brazil around plant-based protein and there's some other ones that are that are in the pipeline and and I think you're going to see more and more of these kind of like areas that we want to play as an organization and maybe we just don't have the right brand yet that that fits that and so yeah we're we're super excited and and I think it's it's helping us the learnings we can get from Mwell we can bring to the fiber family and like so it's the messaging the communication the way we're thinking about it what ads are resonating like we're operating like on a daily basis, whereas Kellogg, as I said, usually it's like weeks, you know, that, that these things are happening, if not months. And so we're able to get a lot more data a lot quicker and give that back to the bigger brands that we work with. So we're really excited about, you know, what's to come with them well, uh, as we, as we ramp up that brand. And I think like, you know, again, everything Jordan says, I echo, 
you know, for the first time, certainly while I've been working at Kellogg's, and I think for most people at Kellogg's, we're actually dealing with proper performance marketing as well, where we're driving people to a point of purchase. And for so long, we've measured our marketing efforts, digital and online marketing efforts based on vanity metrics, awareness-based metrics, right? And how many seconds of this 10-second video do consumers watch on average as a measure of success as to whether our marketing investment is working? Now we're finally dealing with actually driving people onto our own website to go and buy the product straight away. So the learnings, we talked a lot about test and learn and learnings, but what we can educate the broader business on in terms of, you know, these principles of proper performance marketing, is it's very exciting. And, and as Jordan says, I think there is a lot of excitement around the business and an acknowledgement that when you build a brand from scratch and you don't have all of Tesco shoppers coming through your doors every single day and seeing it, you know, you're creating your own traffic that, you know, things might take a little bit more time to kick off. And as Jordan says, since we launched the brand, I think in what, November last year, Jordan, it eventually went live. Already the amount of changes and optimizations and learnings we've been able to take forward, I think has been a, a real eye opener for not just our team, but for the powers that be above as well, who are obviously very focused on this project. And that's a big thing, like just building that real quick. Um, if we had just brought that brand to shelf as as it was eight months ago, it would have failed because we have refined so much the messaging, the communication, how we're positioning it, and and that's where I think the value of D 2 C is. And you know, and I'm preaching the choir to anyone who's listening to this, but it's like that's where a digital native brand comes in and getting closer to that, understanding your consumer needs better. Um, and every emerging brand, they're constantly iterating the product offering, the actual ingredients that go into it and also the way they're communicating it and maybe even the packaging based on the learnings that, that you get over time. And so that's essentially what we're doing with them well before we bring it to, to retail. You know, I just I just looked it up. I see Kellogg is a 31,000 person company approximately. You, you may have more up-to-date numbers on that. But when you when you talk, Joe, about starting in 2015, the, the attitudes towards e-commerce at that time, how much of an evolution Kellogg has a company has gone through then and how you two are sort of champions internally for this new way of thinking about things, it sounds like. Like what have been the biggest challenges working at a 31,000 person company and trying to launch D2C brands? That's another whole three-hour podcast thing, maybe. But It's like turning the Titanic a little bit. When you come into a company that's done things the same way for the last 20 or 30 years, and there's some people who've actually been here for the last 20 or 30 years as well, you know, of those 31,000 people that I work with, a lot of them aren't kind of ready to change the things that they've done. And that sounds really straightforward, but it is really tough, you know, thinking about when I first started and trying to get the business to actually invest into creating digital assets instead of just putting TV adverts on, on Facebook. Um, it's the same piece and it's helping kind of legacy stakeholders to understand the channel. You can't just, I think Kellogg's historically has been quite siloed and if they want to do digital, they kind of bring a load of young people in and set them in the corner and let them do their thing. Whereas what I've found the best way to get success is to actually bring those stakeholders on a journey with you to help them understand the difference between a click-through rate and a cost per completed view. Um, you know, because it isn't actually rocket science. I know for our generation, it's much easier to understand and I appreciate that. But you, when you bring them on the journey and you equip them with the tools to go and have conversations with their customers, which allow them to sound like they know what they're talking about when it comes to digitalization, 
you know, three weeks later, they'll be sat in a meeting with you and they'll be banging the drum for digitalization and investing into digital channels. Um, so a huge piece of it is uh, engaging and educating the business that's around you. Um, I could give lots of other answers, but I probably won't to that question as well. And I, I feel like just one one build in addition to education, which I think is is first and foremost, that's critical to what Joe said. I also think it's really important that you realize like direct consumer is hard. And usually like in Kellogg's world, it's usually not going to be generating the revenue that's going to be like eye popping. It's not going to be game changing from a revenue perspective, at least initially. And so you like, they really have to understand the rest of the benefits. Like I started with, you know, first party data, but there's an immense amount of value whether it's de-risking and helping, you know, like we talked about helping you have more success on shelf, there's value there. Or, you know, the value of that data that you can leverage for your bigger bigger brands. Because one of the things as we build up our own um, database, we can actually drive media efficiency across the board, right? So D to C is like one of the main ways that we're starting to capture that data that can actually drive media efficiency for, for us as an organization. So I think there's a lot of inherent, like what we call indirect, benefits, indirect value that we as an organization are starting to educate people on beyond just revenue. And that's where like the difficulty of doing D2C makes sense once you start looking at it through that more holistic lens. All right. We're just about out of time here. I think we'll have to have you guys back on uh, as repeat guests here. I want to know, what do you think is the most underrated Kellogg's product? I feel like that's a leading question uh, because of, I, I, I am like obsessed with, or not obsessed, I, I love Allbrand and we were, we were chatting with that earlier. Um, I think that Allbrand is one of the most underrated products at Kellogg for so many reasons. Um, but really, you know, like if you value like high fiber diets and there's a reason it's been doctor recommended for like 60 years and our grandparents all ate it, it's incredible. And like the net carbs of it is I think second to none uh, and why so many people end up eating it. And all brand buds, just like a quick little uh, hack, not the original all brand, but the shorter, like great nut looking smaller buds are fantastic. I love it. Are you old enough to remember the SNL commercial with Phil Hartman? Like the yeah, col- colon blow. I'm probably old enough. <laughs> it's it's called colon blow. And it was basically him on, on oh, a mountain yes. of, of brand flakes. Cause it's got a thousand times the, so all brand is not quite there, but all brand sounds like a, an amazing underrated product. <laughs> Joe, how about you? What's your favorite uh, underrated Kellogg product? I'm so glad you've asked me. I'm holding in my hands now. Oh, perfect. Oh. The best products that Kellogg's makes, which is uh, just right. You might not know it in the U S I think we sell it in Australia. Uh, it's a cereal. It's like little corn flakes and little special K flakes. Um, quite sweet. It's got raisins in it uh, and almonds, and it is delicious. And we don't spend any money on it. In fact, the audience that's listening to this podcast now is probably the biggest audience this brand has had in like the last 20 years. So I'm glad you've asked. Go out and buy it. Tell your nice. friends about it. And it's, it's amazing. So thank you for asking, Eric. If my daughter will eat it for breakfast and not just pick it up with her fingers, then I'm 100% on board. That sounds amazing. What about D2C brands? Are there any D2C brands that you guys admire? Oh my God. Yeah. So there's one here. I don't know if you have it, if it's global, but there's a brand called Off Black, O-F-B-L-A-K, which is a tea brand. I love their branding. I love their products. They do a sleepy tea. I take it every night and it knocks me out like a light, which is worth its weight in gold. So yeah, Off Black would be one I'd recommend. Hope they're listening. B-L-A-K. 
Wow, cool, bro. Yes, one word. This will be a good one for you. Joe, you sent me that branding for that. Really, really great branding. Um, this will be a good plug for you, Eric. Uh, I, I am like a consistent buyer of Biome now. And I know you guys had- That's had, awesome. I've been like on the green juice trend for, for quite a while. Uh, again, I think I'm kind of telling myself a little bit of like gut health, um, which is why I love Mwell so much. But yeah, I've been taking drinking green juices of various forms, whether it's athletic greens or- biome for quite some time but i've kind of settled in on biome since since that podcast so it's a good plug that's um, huge i don't often yeah. think of the b to c value of this podcast but it's growing yeah for sure yeah you're, as you get more you're a pretty good influencer <laughs> for the brand so uh, awesome i'll make sure to pass that on to a thief i want to thank you guys so much for making the time for this today uh it's been eye-opening and i think yeah we've just we've just scratched the surface i think at some of these topics we can dive in on so if you're listening to this and you have questions for kellogg you can email me at eric at direct to consumer.co we'll start cataloging another uh topic sheet that we can knock off next time what do you guys recommend are, are you guys open to connecting uh, in the d2c world of course yeah i'm doing like a few calls a week for sure love love chatting with people Jordan or Yuji on LinkedIn, uh, message me for sure. That's yeah, awesome. likewise. Happy to chat and learn. It's the key. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.